Woof. Never gets old. I was talking with Jeremy Sweet last week, and he asked if I was nervous or not. I'm like, of course I'm not nervous. I'm nervous. <laughs> it's a weighty thing. It's an honor. It really is to, to be before you guys. But my heart is beating, so forgive me if I stumble over my words or some other shortcoming. Um, I pray your, your gracious and kind um, forgiveness on that. Let's turn to Luke chapter 11, which is where we'll continue. The last couple of weeks, Pastor Jeremy has taught on Jesus' response to the first group of people after he does a sign in healing. And today we're going to look at the second response. So just to refresh ourselves a little, let's turn to Luke chapter 11, verse 14 and read what this miracle is, what the responses were, and then we'll jump to 29 to 32, which is where we'll spend our time today. Now, he casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and people marveled. But some said, he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. That was the first group, the first response. Verse 16, while others to test him kept seeking a sign from heaven. Let's go down now to verse 29, and I'll read 29 to 32, and that will be the section that we're looking at. Those who to test him kept seeking a sign from him, from heaven. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So in verse 15, we get that first response. You cast out demons, or the first objection. You cast out demons by the power of Beelzebul. And today we'll be looking at those who are seeking a sign from heaven. Something totally undeniable that can't be questioned is what they're looking at. And to point out the nature of this sign seeking, I'm just going to ask a few questions as leading into this. Who... Do you guys know which entertainer in all of history has sold the most tickets for their show? More than Michael Jackson, Madonna, or Elvis Presley. This same entertainer, as you're thinking through it, it has also sold the most tickets on Broadway in a week. More than Cats, more than Lion King. More than Lion King. Um, right? Uh, so, that person is none other than David Copperfield, right? The magician, the illusionist, David Copperfield. You see, people don't care whether his acts are, are real or fake. All they want is to be entertained. And they're actually quite willing to set aside any claim of his that what he's doing, walking through the Great Wall of China or levitating is anything real. They just want the sign. They want to see more entertainment. And they would say, even if he claimed that his signs were real, sure, 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 David. Sure, sure. 
Those are real. Just do that disappearing Statue of Liberty thing again. That's my favorite. Um, and we'll see that this crowd shares that same sort of insatiable desires for sign-seeking, insatiable desire for uh, Jesus to perform something else. Not that it would ever give them the satisfaction that they're looking for in believing and trusting in him, which is what Jesus is looking for. So Jesus, your first point, condemns the crowd. This is the second response to his sign, as we saw in verse 16. And after responding to the first crowd, he's turning his attention now as the crowds are growing. I mean, get this. Jesus just rebuked the other people, the other crowd, for saying that his power is by the power of Beelzebul. And now the crowds are growing. You know, you can imagine the crowds are like, oh, snap, Jesus, just let them have it. And now we're coming because we know that he's going to do some sign, you know, to show them. We're, we just, we've got to see this next sign that he's going to do. Jesus, you've got to show us a sign because that last sign you did was in question. That last sign that was, was being said of and spoken of as being by the power of Beelzebub. You've convinced them, but you've still got to convince us. I mean, the, the, the verdict's still out on the table. And... Um, they persuaded themselves that they can actually demand a sign of Jesus to show his, his genuine authority. But Jesus doesn't. He turns and he says, as the crowds are increasing, this generation is an evil generation. Now, does that mean that everyone in that crowd was evil? Well, certainly not. We know that some in that crowd um, will have come to faith, will have had genuine faith. But as Jesus is looking out on the crowd, looking out on those who question his authority and power and say it's by Beelzebul, and as he's looking out and seeing those who are requesting and demanding a sign, he says, this generation is an evil generation. They're sitting in judgment on Jesus just like the first group. The first group sat on judgment on Jesus saying that these signs, though they're undeniable, they're, they're clearly by the power of Satan. That's how you're able to do it. They're not loving the Lord. They're not turning to Him. They're not for Him. They're against Him. They're not gathering with Him. They're scattering. They're not what Jesus prefers is the proper response to hear the Word of God and to keep it. Instead, they see the sign and they do everything within them to try to prevent anything of this sign being genuine or real or showing who He truly is. And as we'll see next week, see, Pastor Jeremy sets me up, I set him up. Their eye is bad. Their eye is evil. And so they are full of darkness. Both groups. So the second blank is this is an evil generation and their evil is evidenced by seeking a sign. They're seeking a sign. They're testing Jesus, saying, where is your next sign? Where is your next proof of authentication? Let's turn back, keep your finger here, but let's turn back to Luke chapter 4. And there's someone earlier in Luke who also sought to test Jesus, who also sought to see a sign, as it were, of Jesus. And let's see the character of this person and why Jesus would say that this is an evil generation. Luke chapter 4, verse 9 says... And he, speaking of the devil, took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, You are the Son of God. Throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands 
will they bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone? And Jesus answered him, quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So here, the devil is putting Jesus to the test and this group in seeking a way to find out more about who Jesus is. They put Jesus to the test by seeking a sign as well. And we'll flip back now to chapter 11. So they're doing the works of the devil. They're acting like Satan. And what sign would it have been that would have satisfied their desire for seeking of a sign? Well, we know that nothing would have satisfied their desire for seeking of a sign because Jesus has already said in our same chapter, chapter 11, verse 20, as he's talking and refuting the idea that his power is done by, or his works are done by the power of Beelzebul, he says, but if by the finger of God I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. This finger of God reference Jeremy talked about a few weeks ago is an absolute unrefutable claim that Jesus has the power and divine authority to do the miracles that he's doing and their response should be to recognize that power and that authority. It's unquestionable, undeniable, and yet they ask for another sign. (laughs) Another sign of all the things that Jesus has done, even this performing of exorcism here, they say, give us another sign. Since this one is in question. Their sign-seeking is not an indication of their willingness to believe if only adequate evidence were provided, but a rationalization of their unwillingness to believe the perfectly adequate evidence that they already have and have seen. I'm going to read just a, a, a few things or a few miracles that Jesus has already done in Luke's Gospel leading up to this point. We've gone through Luke. We've been in Luke for a while now. And here are some. Jesus heals the man with an unclean spirit or unclean demon, and the report goes out into all the surrounding region. Jesus cleanses the leper. He heals the paralytic. heals the man with a withered hand. He ministers to the great multitude. He heals the centurion's servant. He raises the widow's son where two crowds meet, and Jesus said, Jesus heals or raises the widow's son, and, and this is what it says. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, "All, sorry, a great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread out throughout all Judea and the surrounding countryside. So Jesus has attested to who he is. John the Baptist sends people to say, are you the one or not? And Jesus, he appeals to, he shows signs while those that are there with him Um, see them and say, attest to what you have seen and what you have heard. I am the one. And he gives um, um, more affirmation to that. But Jesus, he does a number of signs throughout this gospel that the crowds have seen, and yet the crowd has a desire for more and more signs, which really shows that the, the evil and wickedness of their own hearts in seeking a sign. So their evil is evidenced by their seeking of a sign. Let's turn now to 
Because there's an Old Testament kind of antecedent to this group, and, and it, all, it also includes the term this generation. So this generation for Jesus is seeking a sign. They're testing him, and there's also a previous generation that sought signs and tested God as well. Let's turn to Psalm chapter 95. I'll read a few of the verses, and we'll get a flavor for part of... of or, 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 or how this is wicked continually, and also another group that they should have known about, these, this crowd, they're the Jews, God's people, and um, the signs that they've seen and denied as well. Psalm 95, I'm going to start in verse 6. Splendor and majesty, whoop, so that's, our, that's Psalm 96. Verse 6 of 95. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test, and they put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So what did the wandering generation in Israelite do? I mean, they, did they see signs? Yes, they did. They saw the, the ten plagues in Egypt, and then they crossed over uh, as if dry land, and then they saw their enemies be consumed in the very same dry land that they walked over. They were given water multiple times. They were given bread. They were given even meat. And they continually, again, just beckoned and complained to Moses, more and more signs. Show us more. You let us out here to, to kill us. You know, what are you doing? You, it would have been better for us to be in Egypt. At least we had meat there, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You see that they also too tested God by seeking a sign. And the Lord is cautioning His people even here and now uh, away from this desire for sign seeking. Jesus then promises a final sign of judgment. So we're back in chapter 11 of Luke. Keep your finger there on Psalm 95. We'll be there at the end of the day as well. So this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. What is the sign of Jonah? It's an important question because whatever this sign of Jonah is, for as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. So Jesus is going to be a sign in the very same way or in a way that Jonah was assigned to the people of Nineveh. So what is the sign of Jonah? And this is somewhat of a complicated question because we have in Matthew, if you just listen, I'll, I'll read it. Matthew has him, himself a, a sign of Jonah. And he says, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Talking about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. So let's turn to Jonah, and as we turn there, um, I'll just point out the importance and the significance of the question. Jonah chapter 3 is where we're going to be. But 
clearly in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus, Jesus' sign of Jonah is the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if they are talking about the same thing, if Luke chapter 11 and Matthew chapter 12 are talking about the same thing, then we know what the sign of Jonah is. We don't need to, to take any guesses. So what does Jesus mean when he says that no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah? Let's read what we have in Jonah chapter 3 because I think the importance is that I think that they're two different signs of Jonah. I think that Matthew is talking about the sign of Jonah in one sense, being the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord. And Luke is talking about the sign of Jonah in another sense, which we'll get to. So Jonah chapter 3, I'm going to take it one verse back, uh, chapter 2, verse 10, and start there. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah upon the dry land. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in its breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overturned. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. Let not man and beast be covered, or sorry, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way, from the violence that is in his hands, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way. God relented of the disaster that he had said that he would do to them and did not do it. So when you think of Jonah, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Everyone always thinks of the fish, right? Jonah got swallowed up by the fish. It's a great children's church um, imagery. But here we have what was said to the Ninevites, what actually happened in Jonah. Jonah was spat out. He wasn't spat out in Nineveh, right? It's not like they saw this fish and Jonah comes out. He was spat out on dry land. He had to travel to get to Nineveh. And then when he got to Nineveh, he traveled a day's journey into Nineveh before he preached. So what is the sign of Jonah? The reason that, again, this is important is because if Matthew, which is clear, is the same thing as, as Luke, then Matthew will determine what Luke means. But I think that they're different, and here's why. Luke wrote, if you remember in Luke chapter 1, he wrote to Theophilus an orderly account. So we should understand Luke as giving information enough to understand what is going on in Luke. We don't need to reach outside of Luke to get an understanding if Luke provides it for us. And Luke wrote an orderly account to do so. So the first sort of phase of our um, reasoning is, is we got to let Luke speak for himself. And when he's clear, we'll, we'll let Luke be clear. Also, 
Matthew's account takes place in Galilee. Matthew chapter 13, just a few verses later from chapter 12, says that as he was coming around the sea, let me read it for you. On the same day, Jesus went to the house and sat beside the sea. This is, this is occurring in Jesus' Galilean ministry around the Sea of Galilee. And as we, we know in Luke, Jesus has set his face to Jerusalem. He's left Galilee. Now it's possible he could have come back up to Galilee and head back down. But there seems to be this decisive shift in Luke, in Luke, not only with the statement that Jesus has set his face to Jerusalem, but also a number of events that, that, that occur as he sets his face to Jerusalem and one being, as we'll see, just the shrinkage of signs. You get all, these, all this grandeur, all these signs attesting to who Jesus is. And after this, you get four signs. And we'll talk about those in a little bit. But they're not as impressive and not as public as his previous signs. So something clearly is going on in Luke that's different. Also, Matthew states that for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so will the Son of Man be three, nights, three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He doesn't say, like Luke says, for just as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh. So Matthew is talking about the event of Jonah being in the fish three days and three nights, which as we look in, in Jonah, the Ninevites, we, do, we don't get any hint or any indication that they knew about the experience in the fish. And a lot of ink has been spilled by, by commentators to, to say that Jonah preached, right? And if Jonah preached, it's not just eight words. It's going to be a whole sermon. There's going to be all this. And he's going to bring in all this evidence about how he got swallowed by a fish. Well, we know that Jonah was reluctant to go to Nineveh in the first place, right? That's where the story of the fish comes in. And we know that Jonah sat outside of Nineveh and was angry that God didn't bring the judgment that he brought in Jonah chapter 4. You can read it for yourselves. So I think it's safe to say that Jonah wasn't ready to just provide all this extra information. He did what the Lord told him. The Lord said, bring this word to the Ninevites. And Jonah did, and it's eight words. There it is. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overturned. And what is the people's response? Did they... Did they respond to his appearance? Did they respond to the way he smelled or his story? No, they believed God. The response is their belief. And the people of Nineveh believed God right after Jonah's sermon. And then you get the king of Nineveh calling his people to repent, to turn away. And they do. Sorry about that. Must be something about the clicker. Um, and they do. They, they repent. And Luke also draws that importance out when he says in verse 32, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. What did they repent of? Or what did they repent at rather? Not his appearance, not his story, but his preaching. And we have what his preaching was, just a simple message. And that was it. So is, or are, or is Jesus contradicting himself, Mark and, or Matthew and Luke? No, because we, we can see even in Luke, I'll just say it, you can um, keep this in your, for yourself, it's not in the notes, but Luke chapter six, sorry, Matthew chapter 16 also records Jesus saying a second time <clears throat> this. The Pharisees and Sadducees came to test him and ask him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, 
When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So already in Matthew, Jonah talks about this, the sign of Jonah two, two different times on two separate occasions. So it's reasonable to understand and believe that this seeking of sign was ubiquitous with this evil generation. They sought for a sign, and Jesus' response on more than one occasion was, you will receive the sign of Jonah. And earlier in his ministry, the sign of Jonah was the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord. And later in his ministry, the sign of Jonah is that there's no sign, just preaching. That's what Jonah brought to the people. He didn't show up with a big hoopla. He came, for yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overturned, and they repented. So the people of Nineveh didn't get miraculous works. They just got a short sermon from Jonah, and they repented. And we'll see here shortly that what they received and their response will be a judgment to this generation. Jesus promises a final sign of judgment. The sign of Jonah is he simply preached. Jonah's preaching was the sign. No additional miraculous miracles um, the Ninevites didn't get. The sign of Jesus then is that he will mainly preach apart from signs. Let me just read to you the four signs that occur after Luke chapter 11. Or the, or the four miracles. There's a woman with a, dis- a disabling spirit in the synagogue in Luke chapter 13. And that's in a small crowd in a synagogue. Again, Jesus isn't, isn't doing the grand signs that he was doing before to attest to who he is and to... Um, to, to be received as, as um, evidence for who he is. He heals a man with droopsy at a dinner with the Pharisees. And in both of those situations, the sign is actually a rebuke to those who are there. The healing of the woman with a disabling spirit is a rebuke to the leader of the synagogue who questions or who tells that woman to come back on uh, uh, one of the six days where you can be healed. On the seventh day, no signs will be be done. No healing. This is a Sabbath to the Lord. And Jesus rebukes that, uh, that man's understanding. And also when he heals the, sign with him, heals the man with droopsy, it's in a small dinner party with the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are questioning whether or not Jesus should do this on the Sabbath as well. And Jesus rebukes them um, with the same logic, saying they would do the same thing for an animal, yet they're here questioning why Jesus would do something for a man. And then Jesus he cleanses ten, lep- 10 lepers on the road to Jerusalem where the audience is only the 10 lepers. Again, not a big grand sign. And then the fourth and final sign is when Jesus is on the road to Jerusalem, passing Jericho, and he heals a blind beggar. And that is on his ro- way and road. He's on the road and on his way to Jerusalem. And that one is a little more public and maybe setting up more of, of what Jesus is, is getting into as he... Uh, arrives triumphantly in Jerusalem. But again, 19 signs before, four signs after. And the degree of the signs is uh, significantly less. So Jesus promises a final sign of judgment, and Jesus' sign will be mainly his preaching apart from signs. 
He didn't only preach judgment from this point on, but it's a notice and decisive shift from how he interacted and spoke with the crowds. Now we'll move on to point two, which is two unlikely judges. So Jesus has just somewhat set the stage for um, these two unlikely judges by calling into question um, the motives of this generation, saying that they're evil, that they've seen enough signs, yet they have this desire for Jesus to kind of do more signs on demand. And Jesus says, you will get no more signs on demand. You'll get nothing but the sign of Jonah. And Jesus will become a sign to this generation, just like the, the Jonah was to the men of Nineveh. And it will be preaching and that will be the emphasis from here on out. And you look at the rest of Luke and you get a ton of preaching. This is the largest section in Luke and we'll get into that more as we move through Luke, but you'll see a lot of the famous you know, teachings of Jesus yet to come. Two unlikely judges. So these two judges are both similar and distinct. There's some similarities and differences. The similarity is in their condemnation of this generation. So the two unlikely judges are both Gentiles. Jesus' audience are Jews. They both receive a message, one of wisdom and another of warning. They're both meant to shame the crowd, and they both will condemn this generation. For as Jonah became a sign to, to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The difference is, the emphasis on the queen of the south is where she came from. So her zeal, she came from the ends of the earth. Her zeal, she came from the ends of the earth. Just listen, I, I'll, I'll read it. You don't have to turn there, but listen to the Queen of Sheba's response as she comes from the end of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. This is what she says. The report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom, but I did not believe the reports until I came with my own eyes and seen it. And behold, the half of it was not told to me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. And then she gives gifts to the king but she calls the Lord Yahweh, the covenant name of, of, of the Lord. And it's clear here that her response is to the Lord. She, she says, blessed is the king and blessed are, are his servants because, <clears throat> because the Lord your God has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. So her response is she blessed the Lord. She has a zeal. She comes from, from, from far away, from the ends of the earth, as Jesus says, to, to receive the wisdom from, jo or, sorry, from Solomon. And after receiving the wisdom from Solomon, she blesses the Lord. 
So she comes from the end of the earth to seek lesser wisdom, and she has a greater response than this crowd does. Jesus is present with the crowd and his wisdom himself, and they are not responding. Instead, they are asking for more signs. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So what's the difference here? The men of Nineveh were praised for repenting at an eight-word preaching from a lesser prophet. And Jesus is a greater prophet and has given them more preaching, more signs, more exposure, and they do not believe. Instead, they seek a sign. So the message that they received was eight words of judgment. Only eight words. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overturned. And their response, they repented and turned from their evil. And this is meant to be a rebuke on this generation. You don't have to travel to see Jesus. He's here. He's present. He's teaching. You don't have to wonder whether he has wisdom. He's wisdom himself. You don't have to have someone come and give you uh, a message from a faraway land that's only eight words and then figure it out. You have Jesus. He spoke. He's given you his teaching. He's given you the signs. And in both cases, they have blessed the Lord or the Queen of the South has blessed the Lord. The men of Nineveh have repented. And this crowd does what? They seek for a sign. And the emphasis then is on, in both accounts, that Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater. He's greater than Solomon, and he's greater than Jonah. I'll read that again. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth and the wisdom of, or sorry, to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. He's near and he's present, and they choose to question and to test him. So he's greater than Solomon because he's greater wisdom in his teaching. There's greater wisdom in his teaching. Because of Solomon's wisdom, the queen of the south was impressed and blessed the Lord. When people see Jesus's wisdom, they worship him. And we see that in, in Luke chapter 9, verse 20, as Jesus is asking, but who do you say I am? And Peter responds, you are the Christ of God. He's greater than Jonah because Jesus is the greater prophet. He is the greater prophet. I'll read Luke chapter 9.35. And a voice came from a cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Which draws imagery back to, to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. And in Luke 11, we already saw that Jesus, his works are clear. They're the finger of God that the people are seeing. And you can check the reference in, in Hebrews as well for more on that point. But Jesus is the greater prophet. He brings a greater message. He has more wisdom. And all of this is stacking up against this generation because instead of hearing the word of God and receiving it and obeying, they choose rather to say his works are from the devil 
and to say that uh, more signs are needed, please. So Jesus has far more wisdom. He is himself wisdom, and he has far greater profit, and yet they have seen and heard this group that wants a sign, and they're demanding it from him. Jesus condemns this unrepentant attitude towards him, and but I don't want you to miss the point that he also gives an opportunity for them to repent by bringing in the repentance of the men of Nineveh. Jesus says that this is a wicked generation. It seeks for a sign. No sign will be given to it. And then later, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation. Well, what happened to the men of Nineveh? They got a preaching, right? Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overturned. And what did they do? What was their response? They believed. They, they repented. So Jesus is offering a, a sign, a gracious sign of hope. Also could be the response of repentance. So the Ninevites received a message of judgment, but it was not final because they repented. So let's turn back to, I said keep your finger there, let's turn back to Psalm 95. And I'll close with this, because the, the warning is for those, and, and many of us know people like this, who say, I'll believe Jesus when he gives me a sign or when, when he does something miraculous, even this day and age. If Jesus were to come and have coffee with me then, and, and explain some things to me that are obscure or why he took away a loved one, then I'll believe in Jesus. But don't let us be like these people. Don't let us question and stand in judgment on the Lord and say, we'll only believe if you give us a, a sufficient sign. He's given us enough. He's given us his word. This is a greater sign for us and, we'll, and, and we have it. But let's read Psalm 95, starting in verse 7, um, just to remind ourselves of this gracious message of hope that we have. For he is our God and we are his people, the people of his pasture the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the reproof, though they had seen my work. Don't harden your hearts. Forty years I loathed that generation and said, they are, my peop they are a people who go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore my wrath. They shall not enter my rest." you can still enter the Lord's rest. It is not taken away from you if you turn from and repent and believe in Jesus. This is a warning to them, but even in the verse in Psalm 95, we see that the Lord is a shepherd. He's gathering his people. We know that we want to be, we ought to be those who gather with the Lord and do not scatter. And the way that we do that is we trust in his word. We ask the Lord to give us eyes to see and ears to hear and behold the beautiful things in his word and to respond properly and not to question the Lord and ask the Lord for more and more signs or more and more of this or why can't you do this or why can't I understand this, but to instead trust that Trust in who he is and what he has given us. He's given us his word, which is more than the, the, this generation in, in Jesus' um, hearing got. And we have so much more that attests to who he is. Let us not pretend like we can stand in judgment on Jesus, lest we find out that on the day of judgment, he and the men of Nineveh and the queen of the south and Moses and 
many others will stand in judgment on us because of what we have and, and our lack of response. So let this be a gracious message of hope that we, we have his word. And even though the Ninevites got a message of judgment, they repented as well. And we too can also repent from, from our sins, repent from our understanding and wrong thinking about who God is and, and who we are. And we can put, all, put that right in place and worship the Lord for who he is. I'm going to transition, as we transition now to a time of communion, I'll close in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your word. You haven't left us in the dark, Lord. You've given us so much. And if that weren't enough, Lord, um, you've given us so much more. We, we don't want to be like the people um, of Jesus' day, this generation. We want to receive you for who you are. We want to see you clearly in your word. And we want to worship you. We want to re- re- believe you. We want to respond in the, in the way that you have said to receive your word, to hear the word, to receive it, to obey it, and to keep it. And I pray, Lord, that you would do that miraculous work in our hearts, that we would turn from our sins, our wrong understanding, and repent and turn to you and see you afresh and anew for who you are. In your name we pray. Amen.